Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Today, we are talking to Dr. Evie Nihulawan, former Rosa Tralee, activist, educator and all-round brilliant Irish woman who has brought her considerable talents to a subject that affects all of us, and that is biodiversity. We should think of ourselves as good ancestors. Cathedral thinking. So the people who built St. Patrick's Cathedral, they weren't thinking about using it for themselves. They were making it for future generations, for their ancestors. And so we should be thinking about being good ancestors. We have to leave this place in at least as good condition as we have it. But shouldn't it be better? And so we should be trying to work towards that. That was Dr. Evie Nihulavon, and we'll be hearing more from her later. Now, just a couple of stories that caught our eye this week. This was the study that showed that pregnant women or new mothers in their 30s or 40s are most likely to be victims of intimate partner homicide. And that's according to a new study into domestic murder homicides. Their partners are also more likely to be at least a decade older than them and to have subjected them to some form of domestic abuse before killing them. The study states that without exception, women are at the greatest risk of becoming victims of domestic homicide, which is most often perpetrated by a male current or former partner. And this is really important stuff. Uh, The study on familicide and domestic and family violence death reviews noted that there is a total lack of empirical research on intimate partner homicide in the Irish context, which is really bad. But this is great because it is rectifying that. The study was launched three years after teacher Alan Hall murdered his wife, Cloda, and their three children in their cabin home in 2016. And it says that international literature on risk factors for domestic homicide are uniform in their conclusions. The studies say the most common risk factor for domestic homicide is a previous history of domestic abuse. This is followed closely by actual or pending separation. And other risk factors include presence of children from a prior relationship, with the presence of children associated with nearly double the risk of domestic violence. It was published on Wednesday. Uh, The study is dedicated to the memory of those who died as a result of familicide or domestic homicide in Ireland. And the really important finding is that there's no standardised risk assessment tool used across service provision in Ireland and different sectors and services are not speaking the same language when it comes to risk assessment. So the study recommends that legislation should be brought in to create structures to collate administrative data held by agencies. And I think that's all really important. As I said, we need to know the story behind that and even just boldly stating those facts while very depressing. Um, As I said, it's very important. And another study worth mentioning is 
slightly more positive one, well, a much more positive one. It says that home births are overwhelmingly more positive for women than hospital births in terms of feelings of joy and comfort. And this is from research from Trinity College, where women talked about the benefits of continuity of care, bodily integrity and informed consent that came with having a birth at home. The study also found in hospitals, midwifery-led care scored significantly higher than consultant-led care. Uh, The study is called It Could Not Have Been More Different and it's the first to compare experiences of those who've given birth both in hospital and at home in Ireland. And it's also the largest published study on home birth in Ireland in more than 25 years. It had 141 participants and the people who were surveyed rated their experience of home birth as 9.7 out of 10 compared to an average score of 5.5 out of 10 for hospital birth. Researchers also found in the hospital setting midwifery-led care was scored significantly higher at 6.4 out of 10 compared to consultant-led care, which was 4.9 out of 10. The lead researcher on the study, Soma Gregory, said that many of the women who participated in the study felt that interventions routinely offered in hospitals were unwanted or unnecessary and would alter the natural course of birth with a perception that hospital policies and procedures were often at odds with individuals' birth preferences and aspirations. Participants expressed feelings of joy, comfort and safety from being at home and indicated that their family's presence and involvement created intimate and personal experiences which were in contrast to experiences described in hospital. And the study is set against a backdrop where, despite the vast majority of births taking place in hospitals in Ireland, the pandemic has brought an increased demand for home birth services. In 2021, 650 planned home births took place in Ireland, a 53% increase compared to 2019. Dr Louise Caffrey said this research underscores the importance of providing maternity care, which is respectful, and responsive to diverse beliefs and aspirations about childbirth, particularly in the hospital setting. And I really wanted to bring this to you because it's not a view you hear expressed very much. Um, Just the fact that in my life, I know a few women who have had amazing home birth experiences and there's a lot of controversy around the subject and a lot of negative uh, stuff talked about it. So I think it's really interesting to hear these positive experiences and not just about home birth, but about midwifery-led care. So uh, definitely something worth thinking about there. Now, you all know Dr. Evine Ihulavon, broadcaster, academic and musician and former Rose of Tralee, of course. She's been recently promoted to associate professor in UCD. She's a brilliant role model to young women in maths and science. And she's been a campaigner, of course, for breastfeeding. And she's also spoken out about her experience of being harassed and stalked over a two-year period from 2015 to 2017 uh, by a fellow professor at UCD. And last year, the university apologised for the way that was handled. But today, she came in to talk to us about something very different, and that's her role as chair of the Citizens' Assembly on Biodiversity Loss. And this is the first such National Citizens' Assembly anywhere in the world, amazingly. The government declared a biodiversity crisis in 2019, but... There is little evidence, unfortunately, that this is being taken seriously. And in April, the final recommendations and report of the Citizens' Assembly on Biodiversity Loss was launched. It contained over 150 recommendations that have the potential to dramatically transform Ireland's relationship with the natural environment. While a lot of the outlook around this subject is bleak, 
I think you'll find this a surprisingly hopeful conversation and I really hope it gets you thinking. We know that change in all of these things is needed at high level in order to protect our biodiversity. But there is also so much we can do as individuals and, and we can make a difference. Having chaired the Assembly on Biodiversity Loss, Evian spoke to me about how she believes things like we should start treating our bogs like our Book of Kells, how we should value our rivers and coastal waters as much as our multinationals and cherish our forests as part of our living history. In doing this, Evian says, we can be good ancestors. I really enjoyed talking to her and here's my conversation with Dr. Evine Nihulawan. Evine, welcome back to the Women's Podcast. It's always lovely to have you and we're here to talk about something uh, different to the things we've talked about before. You led the Citizens' Assembly on Biodiversity Loss and most of us will know your love for maths mm-hmm. and will know you from the Rosa Tralee and a few other things. So how did you get involved in biodiversity? Uh, well, first of all, it's lovely to be back, Roisin. Thank <laughs> you for asking me back in. It's great. Um, so I got a call randomly. I was actually doing my shopping um, late on a Monday evening because we hadn't managed to do it at the weekend and it's not like us. So I was in Dunn's doing the shop and I got this phone call. And, you know, first of all, you think, is it is this serious? Is somebody actually asking me to chair the Citizens Assembly on Biodiversity Loss? And they seemed to be. And But then I was just like, listen, I thank you, but I am not the person to do this. Like, I'm embarrassed. I really don't know anything about biodiversity loss. So I don't think I'm your person but uh, thank you. And then they were like, no, 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 no. Uh, just have a think about it. You know, we think you'd be great. And I was like, but I literally know nothing. They're like, but that's not your job. As chairperson, your main role is to make sure that members of the Assembly are informed enough to make recommendations to the Oireachtas. So now, even this is the women's podcast, so I'm just, I have to ask you this. Like, yeah. Do you think if a man was wrong about something that they didn't have as much expertise on, that they'd be kind of putting that front and centre or they'd be maybe hiding that and going, yes, absolutely. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think that would very much depend on the person, but, you know... Um, this beca- because it came really out of the blue, and I was just like, just my initial reaction was, ah, no, I'm not, I'm not the person for this. Um, and then, uh, well, they said, you know, go and think about it for a couple of days and come back to us uh, by the end of the week. And I was like, Grant, I'll have a think. And I had to have a chat at home because it's a huge time commitment. Um, so it was, you know. Uh, like seven weekends where I'd be gone and then all of the time in between with meetings and things like that. But it is something that, you know, while it's not my field of expertise and, you know, it's not in education, it's still something that's really important for the country and could impact on policy. And that's things that I that are, are very close to my heart. Um, and so I said, fine, I will accept and I will do as much as I can. And I turned into a complete nerd and I read as many reports as I could. And then I calmed down because I realised there was an expert advisory group that we could put together that could actually, <laughs> you know, tell me everything because these are people who've been doing and working in it for decades. Um, so, yeah, that was the the initial invitation that I thankfully didn't decline in the end. Right. Um, tell people how the whole thing works. I mean, how would you get these 99 people in yeah. a room? And it's a kind of interesting process. It's an amazing. We're used to hearing it about abortion and various other subjects. Yeah, this is the thing, Roisin, because like I would have only known about Citizens' Assembly through, you know, um, marriage equality and the abortion referendum. And, you know, we, we hear about the result afterwards and then we go knocking on doors. That's all my experience had been. But... Uh, So this Citizens' Assembly was actually done slightly differently because previous to this, people got a letter or actually got, you know, somebody knocked on their door and asked them to be part of the Citizens' Assembly. And it's kind of a random thing? It was. You had to be part of the electoral register previously. Now, 
in and of itself, that seems fine, but there's actually a lot of marginalised communities who wouldn't necessarily want to be on a register or haven't been able to get on a register. And so this uh, Citizens' Assembly was far more kind of equitable. They sent out 20,000 letters to random households on the Unpust geodirectory and the household could decide who in the household could take up the invitation if they wanted to. And I heard, you know, from members who were at the Assembly, there was a lot of rows in households <laughs> going, no, no, I will do it. No, I will do it. So 20,000 letters went out and over 2,300 people wrote back to say, I would do this. And I think in and of itself, that's amazing because that's 10% of those people who said, yeah, I'm going to give up all my time and do this. And I often get asked, yeah, but who are those people? Like, they must all be retirees who have tons of time in their hand. But they're not. They're just regular people who want to do this civic duty on behalf of their fellow Irish men and women. And uh, I think that that's something we can be really proud of because I, I think of it as a mehel. You know, it's people coming together for the good of the rest of the community. So the 2,300 people that sent back their uh, positive responses were put into a database and then 99 of those are chosen to make sure that there's gender representation, to make sure that we had um, the 18 to 24 year olds represented according to CSO statistics, the over 65s. And then within that, because it was a um, an assembly on biodiversity loss, to make sure that farmers were represented. So farmers make up about 4% of the population, but we actually had six full-time farmers and then more part-time farmers. And then a lot of people married to farmers. So lots <laughs> of things that we didn't realise. And, you know, of course as well, you'd make sure that, you know, people in cities are represented, but also people from rural. And in this, it's kind of tricky because like I consider myself from rural Ireland because we had a townland which was like a phone box, a church and two pubs, well, kind of one and a half pubs. Um, so that was, I consider myself rural, but townies were Castle Bar. Um, but, you know, somebody in Galway thinks that Castle Bar is rural. Do you know? So there's a, there's, you have to get through all that nuances. But we had, you know, over 60% of the people were from, let's say, rural Ireland. So we had to get that mix right as well. And then you want to make sure that there's communities represented that wouldn't maybe ordinarily have a strong voice. So we had a member of the traveller community. We had a Ukrainian person who had been in Ireland actually for 10 years. Um, you know, there were single parents there. There were people who were unemployed. There were people who were working full time. Um, people who actually had to change shifts in their work to make sure that they were there. So a real like broad scope from, from a Leaving Cert student to a software engineer to solicitor to you know, retired taxi driver. Like it was a, just a snapshot of Irish society. And it was such a privilege for me to be in that room and part of that work. Now, you said Mehel earlier, and some people might not know what you mean, but you grew up in sort of rural County Mayo mm -hmm. and the, the community gathered and shared their time and efforts. So tell us about the Mehel and how kind of that inspired your interest here as well. Yeah, um, so uh, it sounds very twee, doesn't it? But like, you know. <laughs> it's so a lovely word though. It is. Yeah. And I do think it's something that's, you know, an important part of Irish culture that we help out our neighbours and we have that sense of community. So like one of my kind of vivid memories of that is one of the farmers down the road. And we were a little bit like misnomers in our village because we weren't farmers. Both my parents are teachers, um, but everybody else was, was a farmer. But one of our farmers down the road had to take in the hay from a field that was a little bit further away from their farm. Farm. And I just remember there was about maybe six or seven families there. And, you know, some people are doing the heavy lifting and actually putting the, the haystacks together. 
as the kids, we were all given bit of, like jobs to do. Mine was to go to the shop to get the lemonade for the break that we were going to have. And it was just a lovely way of spending that time, uh, just a full day together in the, you know, really hot sun. But everybody did it. You gave up a day because it was your neighbour asking you to do something. And you knew that when you need something, that people will do that for you as well. So that's mm. that really lovely sense of community. And I think that's what... Ireland does very well in its citizens' assemblies. You know, if you get a a letter to be asked to be part of a jury, you know, that's a civic duty. But if you get a a letter to be asked to be part of a citizens' assembly, that is also a really important civic duty because you're doing something that has potential to really impact society in Ireland. Yeah, and it's had far-reaching effects on on our society Mm -hmm. in a a wonderful way over the years. Um, So let's talk about biodiversity loss, uh, what it is, because people might look around Ireland, see green fields, flowers, trees and think, yeah. you know, what's the problem? It all looks yeah. very nice. Yeah. So I know you're not here to scare us necessarily, no. but at the same time, some people are very head in the sand about these issues. We don't like to think about it because it can feel too big and too depressing. And what sure, what can I do? I know. But that's not a right attitude. So, so maybe you can help us. Well, I'll start at the beginning of that um, because... I think biodiversity, we haven't really been talking about it. And so I think most people kind of have a knowledge of climate change and the climate crisis. And we know that, you know, that that is happening. That's a global thing. And yes, we can get panicked about it. But, you know, we all try and do our bit and that's fine. Biodiversity loss is different in that it's kind of happening so gradually, it's almost invisible. And initially when I, you know, began as chair, you know, and I was looking around and I was at home and I was just like, but the fields are there and they're lovely and I can hear loads of birds. So like, really, what are they going on about? And then in our first meeting, we, you know, got a definition of what biodiversity is, which basically encompasses all life and all systems on Earth. And it's the systems part that's really important. Um, because when this system, when a part of a system starts to break down, that means the whole system is going to. And so when biodiversity loss, when you're thinking about it on a grand scale, yes, that means that some species might be going extinct. And that is happening to a third of our species on land and underwater, um, which is very frightening in and of itself. And But part of you might just go, oh, that's really sad, isn't it? That poor little bird isn't there anymore. But it's not that because that bird is a food source for something else or it is actually um, eating something else that we need it to. And then that system is going to break down. Mm. And when that happens, that means the ecosystem services that nature gives us won't be there anymore. So what that means is, well, what does nature do for us? And I, I didn't really think about this before, but like we depend on nature for our water's source for pollinators because without the pollinators we do not have enough food um, for carbon storage which will help us with climate change and all of these things that nature just does for us that we just take for granted and so it's really to think about well if nature is this big system nature basically is the planet and humans are actually a subset the economy is just a subset of nature if we keep pushing and pushing and pushing and the nature part starts to, to collapse, then everything else is going to collapse. Mm. So biodiversity is really all of the life that you see around you and how it interconnects with everything else. But that can be a pond in a garden or a puddle in a garden. That is That could be considered a, you know, an ecosystem. Or you could think of it as, you know, 
the whole of the ocean and that as an so so it's really multi-scale and in one way I actually think this is where my maths background might help me a little bit because one of my favourite topics was dynamical systems and you know that's basis of like weather and things like that but if you have a small change at the start of the system it really impacts everything else that was part of what we were doing in our mathematics and it's the same now for the biodiversity it might be just one small change but it affects everything else and when Jane Goodall spoke to us at the end of our meetings what an amazing I person know, we had amazing. her on the podcast oh, she's before. just amazing it's probably one of the most incredible people I've like, ever met she had the whole room in tears but yeah. she really I think she explained it really well because she thought of biodiversity as a tapestry and she said you know your tapestry's there and you can pull a couple of threads out of it and it's still your tapestry you can still see it but you start pulling a little bit more and then you'll get that one thread that everything falls apart and she was just saying we can't get to that point but we're close wow. but she was full of hope okay, so I well don't want to scare good. anybody we like, we like to biodiversity is different to climate change in that biodiversity you can actually impact it locally and the local biodiversity is hugely important because areas that are biodiverse are better protected from the effects of climate change mm. and are better for human well-being so we can all make a difference okay. don't panic a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That's good. Let's talk about some of the things that you discovered as as chair of this. So let's talk about hedgerows, for example. Right. Which might not sound the most fascinating no. <laughs> thing, but they're a big part of Irish biodiversity. And they are. They are kind of going or they're they're vanishing. Yeah, we're, the, the countryside is kind of disappearing in terms of the hedgerows. And there's actually, I found all of this out, but there's a really active hedgerow society that's trying to save them. And we had it's a speaker lovely, in. Actually, <laughs> oh, you'd be blown away by this, Roisin. And like... This is where the good news story is Irish people are great and there's communities all around the country looking after nature. There's the Friends of Merlin Wood. There's the Friends of the Kamak River. There's a group looking after our wild native goats in Mayo. You know, there's all these people look doing a great yeah. jobs and there's the Hedgerow Society. And we don't hear about them like we much, don't, do we? Like? We don't. Now, we did try and showcase them in the Citizens mm. Assembly, but they would think of the hedgerows as literally the blood supply of the country. If you think of it as that, like our, our veins and our blood vessels, that's what the hedgerows are because mm. they're kind of sanctuaries of the animals to go from one to another. You know, so all of the wildlife that might be in your hedgerow, 
Um, and it needs to move, but it has to go to a different hedgerow that's actually within a travelling distance for it. And they're so important in terms of the, the the flowers that are there, the fauna, the wildlife, all of that. And then we don't even think of it as there's carbon being stored in them as well, because in the really older hedges, there's mm. like a beautiful trees and everything like that. So they're providing us with services as well as looking after the rest of um, nature and wildlife. So it's really important that we actually adhere to our own laws at that and we don't cut them down when we shouldn't. But are they being cut down? So what, what did you find out that is like one of the recommendations that we need to Yeah, that, that, well, that we actually should have a full strategy on our hedgerows and actually manage it as a resource and the resource that it is. Um, and there's a lot of new things coming in, which is great. And farmers now will be able to keep hedgerows on their land because before there were policy issues where they would have to cut down hedgerows or scrubs to get payment because the land had to be, you know, valuable or productive, whatever. So there were a lot of policy issues that have really been damaging nature um, and they are beginning to turn around now. But it's for us in everyday life to also, you know, to be that person to say, you know, actually, you're not allowed to cut down this hedgerow right now um, and to maybe call the National Parks and Wildlife Services or your um, local authority, the biodiversity officer in your local authority, more more um, local authorities are getting that. So it's just to kind of be aware of the importance of these things um, and their heritage value as well. Do you know, it's part of what makes Ireland look like Ireland, do you yeah. know, to have all these lovely hedgerows. And let's talk about water because mm. that was also kind of bleak. Yeah, yeah. Now, I actually thought that maybe the most depressing session that we would have in our Citizens' Assembly would be around agriculture. But that actually ended up being really, really productive. And we had really good conversations on that. We had like eight different farming associations in and the farmers spoke to us and went around the room. And we also had a lot of farmers in our membership. So that ended up being a very constructive session. And I wasn't worried about freshwater because I just thought, well, obviously, that's got to be fine, doesn't it? And one of the scientists, um, Mary Kelly Quinn is her name, she spoke to us and she basically said her, that one of her last lines, and I'd recommend anyone to go back to the YouTube of it. She said, if I haven't communicated the urgency of this to you today, I have failed. Because she had told us that almost half of our freshwater in Ireland is in poor or deteriorating condition, like half of the waterways. In the 1980s, we had 500 pristine rivers. We've just got under 30 now. We are losing our water quality for a myriad of reasons, but we are not looking after it. And that will mean we may not have access to drinking water. Like, can you fathom it? We're an island nation. We have beautiful waters. Um, you know, and I'm very close to like the lakes that I grew up around, La Cara, La Carob, um, you know, and, and you kind of just depend on them to always be there and to be viable. Mm. Um, but we're really not looking after them. So should we go into some of the reasons why this has happened or what's more important like in terms we, of focusing on we getting can. it back to a better place? Yeah, so. we can. And um, obviously I'm not the expert in this, but what the scientists were saying, but also all of the local groups who are mm. doing all of the work is that we really need to look after our waters upstream. So they kind of get a little bit ignored because they don't look like the full rivers, but it's actually the upstream where a lot of damage is being done. We need to make sure that there's a buffer zone between forests and agricultural land and an actual river or, or a stream because that's where the under uh, the underground um, residue will go into that water and that often has, you know, phosphates or nitrates, depending on what's been done on the land, if it's agriculture um, or if it's happening that the forest is going to be runoff if it's all one monoculture and that's all going to go into the river. Um, and also that we should be trying to do natural 
processes with it. So like we shouldn't be damming up things, but if there's a natural way of having, making sure, you know, that there's structures there in place. So it's really thinking about it as a whole, again, a whole system and not just, oh, the Shannon will be fine. It actually won't be if we don't look after all of the subsidiaries that are are going into it. The lakes won't be fine if we actually don't implement all the things that we're supposed to, like in the buffer zones and things like that. I mean, there's loads more that people can be doing. And this is where I'll go back to the recommendations. The members of this Citizens' Assembly were so frustrated and disappointed that we actually have a lot of legislation to do all these things, but none of it's been enacted. And that's where they came up with 159 recommendations because they went through each sector and under Freshwater, I think there's about 20 recommendations, uh, really significant things that you can do. And in terms of policy, and this is where a Citizens' Assembly, I think, is, is I think it really is a benefit because it talks about the ground up and the top down because the, the recommendations go back to our, our, our rock this. Um, so something like reviewing um, the Arterial Drainage Act 1945, that's something that is doing huge damage because in certain cases, parts of a river are being dug out and that's actually not beneficial to the health of the river, the biodiversity. Because we didn't the know as much as we do. We didn't, then. We didn't know. but we do know yeah, it now. Yeah. And so the policy has to follow that. Right. Um, and so there's really specific recommendations. And is there that. a kind of a bit of laziness or incompetency about this, about certain things not being enacted? certain bits of legislation or is there something more sinister afoot? I don't know if it's sinister. There's a lot of crises happening at the moment but I think what's really important for us to remember you know like obviously there's a housing crisis there's a healthcare crisis but I think the thing that I am trying to focus on in this work because I'm now advocating for the recommendations is that the climate and biodiversity crisis is a threat multiplier that if we don't actually address those everything else is going to get worse and it's going to affect uh, the more vulnerable members of society harder and yeah. um, so we have to address like the fundamental problems with this and doing very simple straightforward things like policy um, you know, reviews and um, also funding community work that all these wonderful groups are doing this amazing work. Let's fund them. Let's give them a centralised place that they can come to. Um, having a centralised body that actually looks after biodiversity because biodiversity gets lost in the cracks. You know, we have a department that talks about climate. Biodiversity is a section within the Department of Housing and obviously they're thinking is about it? a lot more things. It's in yeah. the Department of Housing. Yeah, that yeah, doesn't yeah. make sense. No, Should it doesn't. not be environment? It probably should be. I mean, be. I'm not a politician, but even that makes sense. Well, like... again, this is a recommendation <laughs> from the members of the Citizens' Assembly that we actually need to really, really magnify biodiversity as something that we can and need to address. And the thing is, we can be very successful in this because thankfully nature is resilient. It's holding on for dear life. We just need to give it a little bit of help. Yeah. Um, let's talk about bogs. Not okay. something I don't think we've ever talked about on the <laughs> women's podcast. <laughs> oh, we but should. Yes, we should. And yeah. So let's talk about them because yeah. they're so important as well. They're hugely important. So again, things that I only learned in this <laughs> past year that our peatlands, our bogs, store more carbon than the Amazon rainforest. What? Yeah, twice, nearly three times as much. So our bogs are probably the most valuable asset in the EU. But over 70% of our peatlands are in bad status, as in we are really not looking after them at all, and only a small fragment of them remain intact. Mm. So with all of the laws that are already there, that's what the members are saying. We have to enact those laws and we have to stop taking that peat out of the bogs because it's carbon. Now, 
they've also put in the proviso that if there are people who are solely depending on turf as their only fuel, you have to give them the money to do what they need to do in their houses or to buy the fuel that they need to need that they need. So that's part of a a transition that's just. Um, So that is something that it was very strong from the membership. But also, you know, we had community groups in. So we had Irish Rural Link in and that represents over 100,000 people. And a lot of those were previously people who'd been depending on turf Mm. and were turf cutters. But... They saw that, oh no, actually, I'm really proud of where I come from. I'm proud that I come from the bog. But I also see that we have to have a look to the future and I want to be part of the future story of the bog. Um, And with that, like, we need to be looking after our bogs like we look after the Book of Kells because it's actually hugely important as part of our heritage because there's so much history in a bog as well. And you can see that some bogs are now being used as, you know, tourist destinations for beautiful uh, nature walks because the wildlife there is spectacular. But it's just something that, yes, we have to have a discussion. Yes, we have to make sure that people are compensated where that, you know, that they, they, they we're asking them not to use turf anymore. And we have to acknowledge that it's a hugely important cultural part that people grew up go into the bog. You know, I actually have only been to the bog once and I was useless and I got, you know, told <laughs> off by my cousins for just wasting time. But like it was a hard part of their summer that they did regularly and people are very proud of that. So I almost think that, you know, within those bog spaces, we probably should have museums to cherish that heritage and cherish that culture and capture the voices of the people who have really fond memories. Well, they say fond, but, you know, they'll also tell you the backbreaking work. My dad will tell you his backbreaking work and he hated it, mm. but he's still very proud of it. Um, so we have to acknowledge all of those things. And again, this is where the Citizens Assembly was amazing because you have time to have these discussions and you have time to listen to somebody else and hear their perspective that you hadn't thought of before and you might even disagree with, but you'll listen respectfully. And that's where the recommendations come out and they're very measured because these 99 people really considered and debated and discussed respectfully and then came up with the majority view. Um, so that that came out as very strong that, you know, we have to actually look after our bogs as the cultural resource and heritage that they are. And you talked about, I think, did you say 149 recommendations? 159, 159 yeah. 159 recommendations. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot. It is. <laughs> <laughs> but if you were to say, um, kind of, to pinpoint a few of them or the most important ones. Yeah, yeah. It's I, hard, I'm imagining. I'm getting asked this a lot, but <laughs> and I really think it depends on who you're talking to. Yeah. So, okay. but if I was to say, for me, what are yeah. the most important ones? Well, what are the ones that I could maybe impact in my other education hat on, you know, that we need to have more education on biodiversity and climate change uh, in our curricula. So we need to be doing this in primary school. You know, the, the nature table comes back. You know, we had a teacher in from Is the Irish. nature table gone? Some schools apparently uh. it is, yeah. But we had the Irish School Sustainability Network in and one of those teachers, you know, he gave us a lovely story that there was a heron in the school grounds and the kids came in talking about a swan and he was just like, oh, oh my God, how are we here? And he's transformed that school and they're making their own honey with bees and everything. Like, oh, There's some amazing I mean, there's teachers some, out there. You can imagine all these primary schools with them sort of grass roofs or, yes, you know, yeah, kind of creating... Yeah, the roofs, all of that and yeah. having little uh, pollinator no habitats. And no better people than primary school students to Absolutely. kind of get, you know, but brainwash them into the biodiversity yeah. loss well, We don't want teachers to do more because teachers get a lot of, of lands on them. But yes. it should be just be an integral part of but the also 
be volunteers, I presume, who would be interested in going into schools and doing stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it should be in, you know, the Leaving Cert. It's it's going to be a separate subject in the Leaving Cert, but I am not sure I agree with that because if it's a separate subject, not everybody will be doing it. And again, it should be an integral part of what you're doing. Biodiversity or climate or what? Both, because they're interlinked. So climate change affects biodiversity badly, but areas that are biodiverse are protected from climate change. Yeah. So they're they're very much interlinked. Um, so that should be part of just what we're doing. And I think a public engagement campaign on this, you know, we did it really well with COVID that, you know, everybody was given a clear message on it. And I think this is, again, the members of the Assembly, a lot of them came in not having a breeze and they mm. will happily say that themselves were like, I, I wish I had known because yeah. I'd be talking about this more and I'd be talking about this when politicians come knocking at my door. So I think part of that is the public engagement. So that's why I'm yeah. delighted to talk to you. Oh, well, lovely. <laughs> And so the education bit is one thing, but I suppose a lot of the time as individuals, we feel like, OK, I mean, I'm yes, going down okay. to West Cork and I'm going to the declare for my holidays in the summer. Yeah. And, you know, after speaking to you now, I'm kind of going to be what looking even more closely yeah. around at, yeah. at the beautiful things and thinking, is that working right? Is, you know, how's that river doing? How's that lake doing? But yeah. Sometimes it feels like as individuals we can only do we can only do so much. Yes. And so presumably some of those hundred and fifty nine recommendations are about kind of the people who can actually affect change yes. and the, the systems, mm-hmm. you know, the political ones yep. and also the uh commercial businesses that yes. are presumably creating damage. So what would yeah. what what's the important ones there? Uh so for policymakers there's a whole load. I mean the uh, hopefully they get most of them, do they? They, <laughs> they actually do. And you know, ordinarily that's what a citizens assembly will return. It will return the high level. But because they were so frustrated that the state has really been doing nothing for decades, successive governments haven't addressed this at all. That's where they wanted to go into the nitty gritty of each sector. But there is a lot there for government um, in terms of like even thinking of the success of a country in broader terms than just GDP. Like if GDP keeps growing, fine. But can we talk about it more in terms of well-being that incorporates nature because, you know, if our GDP is continuing to increase, but the problems are still all there and and, and also housing, etc. So a broader think of a, a broader framework of a, a national being, um, national well-being framework, um, you know, a review of taxation policies, a review of subsidies to make sure that the subsidies that we give out aren't actually damaging nature. So there's a load there. And if you go to citizensassembly.ie, you'll get the website. There's a lot there for industry as well. And uh, ideas about you know, well, maybe you should have similar to like a health and safety officer or a health and safety policy in a business. Shouldn't you have a biodiversity one and making sure that we're not greenwashing? Because there's a lot of terms being bandied about now about like carbon farming and things like that. And that just means it's another cert that you can buy off for your business to say that you're green, you know, to make sure that they're not there. So there's all of those details there. Saying all that, and I am working a lot now um, to try and ensure that this gets, you know, reviewed thoroughly. The Rockthis, um, I've taken it, it will go to a joint Rockthis committee. I am presenting in Leinster House at the end of June. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm working to all that extent. But individuals can actually do okay, a lot good. too because yeah. if you can benefit the pollinators in your garden or your window box or in your local garden, you know, community group. Um, that's something you can easily do. So only buying flowers or only planting flowers that are going to be good for your pollinators, your bees and your butterflies, cherishing them, uh, trying to convince your estate not to cut all of the grass over the summer and to keep elements of it that might be wild because that's the pollinators. And I know that gets very political, but, you know, sometimes it's a really good thing. Um, all those things like that. Even having a local community cleanup group, even doing something like that, because the research shows you that if you are part of a local cleanup group, 
everyone else is more likely to start thinking about the nature and the environment around them. So all of these things are helpful. And then obviously where you can, you know, to try and use your bike. I know you're a cyclist, you know, uh, all those things where like we actually should try not to fly because carbon and climate impacts biodiversity. So there is loads that we can do. Mm. And I think not I'm not putting it on to individuals. This has to come from a high level as well. But living and behaving ethically is the foundation for radical social change. And if you can do that to live whatever way you think is ethical, that has a positive influence on other people around you. You may not know it, but it does. So whatever you can do yeah. to help the environment helps other people help the environment too. We haven't talked much about trees, um, but I presume they came up a lot. And I have a friend, yeah. Catherine, who used to work in the Irish Times, who still has a column, and she runs Pocket Forests. I don't oh, know if you lovely. know about yes, them. But yeah, yeah. Basically, they go around planting Irish native yeah, trees amazing. that many of them are lost now, yeah. bringing them back. And so they've been doing it in schools. And, you know, it's Fantastic. really incredible. Did, did trees kind of come up? Oh, because we have a lot of bad stuff with forests. We do. We foresting, do. We? And trees came up hugely because, like, only 2% of our forests are native woodland in Ireland. And we have the lowest That's tree it, cover yeah. of any country in Europe. I just think it, it's, it's really depressing actually and thanks to like many friends like your, your, Catherine, many people, like your friend Catherine forests, yeah. and there's a lot of other lovely forest companies now who are only selling um, native Irish woodland and lots of individuals around the country are trying to do their piece and I'll reference my dad here who is I don't know how much he's spent but he's planting so many trees wow. on the bog that he has now or around the bog let's say um, He must be really proud of you doing this is he? But I actually feel really embarrassed because I didn't realise how much work he was doing and do you know what I was having a chat with him last um, last summer and he was like telling me about this plant um, that's carnivorous plant that we have native to us in our Irish bogs and I was just like ah now dad don't be making things up and he's like I'll bring you to it and I was like I, I'm so embarrassed I know so carnivorous little. Carnivorous plant yeah, yeah, yeah. The name escapes me off the top of my head, but it's wow. beautiful. It's this pink little um, little plant. Uh, so, yeah, we've got gorgeous things in Ireland. But anyway, sorry, I go back to the forest. They came up as hugely relevant because the members of this assembly said that our forests should be considered as a national resource and should be thought of as that for now and for future generations. And that's in terms of making sure that if it's on state land that we own it, and because I think down the line again, people were wondering like, well, who owns the carbon stuff? Because if this is where private industry wants to go with it, to make sure that we're actually just thinking about all the repercussions of that. And to also, they wanted a review of the Quilcha um, Act because, you know, Quilcha's current premise is to make profit. And obviously, yes, the government obviously wants to have that income. But should biodiversity not be more of a priority for it? So it's currently only a small percentage of what they do, um, the fifth or so. Um, but shouldn't that be far more? And in terms of then that we reduce our use of uh, pesticides and herbicides, not only in agricultural land, but also in forestry. So there's a lot, actually, there's a whole section also on and, the forestry. So there's a load there about on the trees. Like, you know, there's sort of forestry, um, people coming in and planting trees and, and the economic thing of it, but it's not good for... Well, Ireland. we just have to think of a big picture on this. I think that's that's just what's key. Like the, the trees are so valuable in terms of how much we depend on them for air. Do you know, I, I, if you've ever been to Fern Hill uh, just in Dublin 18, there's a couple of those trees there that um, show or that, that they have on it, like how much um, oxygen that they're providing. And you look at that and you're just like, 
oh, oh God, I need that many trees just for me, just for one year. Oh no, okay, we really need to plant more. And they actually had, the Dunleary Rotdown Council had a kind of flash mob planting event for two days of all Irish native mm. trees. So there's beautiful things happening, but it's just to make sure that we're actually really treasuring it and thinking about it. Um, and in terms of the trees, you know, I, I invited a speaker in uh, who's a an expert in Breton law. And I love this because it's like we're going back to our roots in that, you know, in Breton law, it was such a sin to damage an oak tree that you'd you'd almost be cast out of society for doing it, you know. So it's just to kind of maybe give a nod to our elders who realised all of this. And I've also just listened recently to um, a scientist from Canada who's actually a member of an Indigenous tribe, but she went into private forestry and then realised all these monocultures, everything's getting sick and we're losing a percentage of it all of the time because they're all getting sick. And so she wanted to go back to her native roots, if you'll pardon the pun. And uh. she planted three different types of trees together and then put a marker in one of them to see how that might, you know, impact on the other trees. And she found that the trees were communicating with each other. So the marker in one tree was going into another and crossing over to another. And it's the whole biodiversity system again, that nature thrives when it is diverse. Same as society, it will thrive when it is diverse. And we need to actually just cultivate and celebrate that diversity, that biodiversity, because that's when, you know, everything will work in equilibrium again. That's a really lovely message. And just because it's the women's podcast as well, I mean, we've seen and we've talked about it on this podcast before how climate change is like women are affected yeah. so much yeah, by yeah, it. Yeah. Did, did that come up at all or is that kind of something you're interested in? Do you in? know what? It, it really didn't because there's already been a Citizens' Assembly on climate change and yeah. that kind of went under the radar, yeah. I think. It happened in a much shorter timeline than ours. But yeah, the the, the climate crisis affects women um more deeply because it's really the women um, who will have to kind of, you know, and, and I was reading an article on, on Pakistan recently, like it's the women, 80% of the women who are actually just having to deal with the floods that were there, the lack of food. It's the women who are then asked to provide for their families. It's the women who are giving birth in countries now that, you know, they're being like devastated by the climate crisis. And it's not that I want to take want people to take that on, but it's just to consider the repercussions of what happens in one place will affect another and back to the systems again. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to necessarily worry as much in Ireland, but there are minority cre- uh, groups and underprivileged communities mm-hmm. who are being affected, you know, by the climate crisis, purely by the low quality housing that they have or they're depending on public transport, but it's not of a good quality and it's Mm. not dependable. So all of these things are completely interlinked. So, yeah, it's a bigger picture. It wasn't in our terms of reference. And so that wasn't part of the jigsaw puzzle that we put together in the recommendations. But in I think in broader conversations, we really need to think about it in terms of if we really are talking about having a more equal and more equitable society, we have to think about that in terms of the climate crisis and biodiversity. And that's then that links up with the sustainable development Goals. That's mm. what the UN was trying to do with the uh, Sustainable Development Goals, mm. that we try and look after equality within society through doing it by by by, by minding nature. Because if we look after nature, we'll look after ourselves. Okay. Um, talking about the bigger picture, I want to ask you about yourself generally as well. Okay. Like you've you've been such an activist, I think, in, on so many levels. I mean, you've you've talked about breastfeeding, the importance of that, and how we treat breastfeeding mothers. You've you've done so many things. Um, do you where do you get that energy to do it? I know. <laughs> I, I just feel I feel very. I really admire people like you who take on these sometimes quite complex subjects or subjects that people people don't 
aren't open to and you're trying to convince them. So you're very motivated by to, to try and change things for the better. Yeah, yeah, I, I am. And I, I don't know if that's always a good thing. I actually did a, a little survey recently and it was like, what are your top values? And it came out, it was like um, making a change. And I was like, oh, damn it. I'm just, like, I wreck my own head. Just like, shut up sometimes. But, you know, it is important. And I do think it's important that we all try and make society a better place because we only have this one precious planet. Mm. And if we don't work together, what is the point? You know, and I think... You know, if you think about deep space, and that was my original, like I got into physics because I wanted to think about deep space, but we're just an insignificant rock off one star. And if we're not working together, like really, what is the point of us being here? So I just think if I can make a difference, that's for the better of society or people in general, even if it's just teeny weeny weeny. Um, I'm, that's what I'm happy to do. And did that deepen? Because I know you've two young boys. Did that mm. deepen since becoming a mother? Do you think? I mean, do you look at them and sort of, or well, was it? It was always there, I suppose. I guess it is. But this came out a lot in the citizens' assembly that we should think of ourselves as good ancestors. Cathedral thinking. So well, the people who built St Patrick's Cathedral, they weren't thinking about using it for themselves. They were making it for future generations, for their ancestors. And so we should be thinking about being good ancestors. We have to leave this place in at least as good condition as we have it. But shouldn't it be better? And so we should be trying to work towards that. And so like I'm talking and and I have a platform and I'm very privileged that I have that um, and I should use it in that context. But then, you know, if you're doing small things on your road or in your office or in your staff room or in your estate all of that makes a difference, you know. So I just think it's not, I'm not putting it on anybody because you may not have the privilege of having that extra time and that extra energy and saying that I'm going to take a long holiday this summer roaching because I am tired. Um, but I just think that that is important. You know, Earth is nothing if humans aren't working together. We are only one species, mm. do you know? And so we have to work together. I love that cathedral thinking. Mm. I hadn't heard that before. And I also just want to ask you, because UCD apologised to you late last year yeah. um, because of the way you were treated, you were harassed and stalked and you were very... I, I mean, I hate that word brave. It sounds a bit trite, but, you know, I feel it's very courageous to talk out about those things that are so devastating um, and how you were treated. Did that apology mean a lot to you? Was it important? It was very important. Um, I didn't realise how important it was until I got it because it really put a full stop on everything. Um, I hadn't actually got a f- an official apology, even though, you know, I had talked about it back in, I think it was 2020. Um, and I just wanted to make sure that there were no, um, that there wasn't any cloudiness over the fact that I had actually expressed a desire to want to make a formal complaint and I had not been encouraged to do so. Um, so I just wanted to make sure that that was clear, but also that the university acknowledged the just that everything that had happened, I guess. Um, and they did so. And I was very grateful to the interim president, Mark Rogers, who did that. Um, and I think that demonstrates leadership. And I think, you know, it's important that people in uh, our figures of authority have to demonstrate leadership. Because where you were coming from, I think, as you as you sort of expressed earlier about making positive change, I mean, it's the idea that another woman in your situation or man, mm. indeed, mm-hmm. would be treated better and supported in, in a better way if, yeah. if it happens again, because presumably it will happen well, again. Well, like the systems within UCD have uh, really changed. There's um, an honest reporting. There's new ways of actually 
um, going through to make a complaint. There's um, people now who are external to any college or institute that you can go to to discuss anything that's happened to you. So there's been a lot of change in UCD, which is great. And also, I mean, because again, I'm in a very privileged role. And, you know, I spoke to the National Women's Council about it at the time and I got to speak to Minister Simon Harris. Um, and it was in the Programme for Government Talks that I happened to be. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Party of, we wrote that into the Programme for Government, and now every higher education institute across the country has to report their figures on this and they have to have a policy. And also in the funding mechanisms, um, there's an element written in that if it's somebody as part of your project that has... Um, you know, a claim like this made against them that that impacts on the funding as well. So it's actually now as part of the system, it's great. So I'm delighted that some change has come out of it. Does it make it feel like worthwhile to having exposed yourself for that? Because like, I imagine it was hard and reliving it and having to talk about it. uh... Yeah, it was hard. But actually what I found important for me was knowing of other women that other things had happened to that I actually thought were worse than mine, but that they weren't in in a position to speak. And I am. I am in a position to speak. So, yeah, it uh, it did. It does make it worth it. Well, yeah. thank you very much for doing it and well done because I think it makes a huge difference. You Thanks can see even in the policy change. But um, let's just go back to biodiversity for a little moment and just leave our listeners with a kind of a thought. What is it having become a nerd, as you said, and you know, educated yourself in such an amazing, you have an amazing brain as well, which is very handy. No, I don't, and I really don't. You're <laughs> such a wonderful communicator. You're, you're the perfect person. I bet they get you to chair some other Citizens' Assembly. Now. I bet you're on their <laughs> list. They'll be like, get her back. Um, what would you like to leave? What overall message out of the 159 recommendations, Ooh. which is big, but I mean, maybe not even to do with the recommendations, yeah. just more about what would you like people to think about and consider yeah. about this subject? I, well, one line I think is really important that if we protect nature, we protect ourselves and that we can all make a fund- fundamental difference uh, because nature is resilient. So even if you just go to the allirelandpollinatorplan.ie, there is stuff there that you can do, but also talking about it talking about it, discussion, that's how we get things done, particularly in Ireland because we love talking and when people talk about it, change happens. So I just think the kitchen table conversations, that's how we get our societal changes. And that's how we have done it, isn't it's it? how we've With done it. all the different topics and yeah. it's a very good point. So just sitting around and over dinner having the chat about the hedgerows or yeah. the trees yeah, or yeah. the bees or whatever it is. Exactly. Making it part of normal conversation yeah. and not some big subject that we can't, you know, that just feels too unmanageable. No, and, and finding the magic in it. Like I learned about freshwater pearl milk I'm so embarrassed. I didn't know about them before. Okay, well, I didn't know about them either. So, <laughs> And they live until they're like 100. Um, where are they? They're in, the in rivers our and rivers. So? And I think they're the, it's, Ireland is actually the only place where they are now that they're native. 
but they're dying because we're not looking after them. So it's just little precious things like that that you're just like, okay, we got to we got to change that. We have to make that happen. So okay. let's just do it. Well, even thank you so much for coming in. It's always such a pleasure. Uh, I always learn something and you make me think. And uh, yeah, it's just great to have oh, you thanks in. So Richard. thanks for all the work you've done <laughs> and we'll continue to do. And also congratulations on your promotion. Thank you. Associate professor, no thank less. Thank you. Yeah, that's it. Dr. Evan Newlow. Thank you so much. <laughs> That was Dr. Evie Nihulo on there. What a woman. You can find out more about everything she was discussing on citizensassembly.ie. That's it for now. Get in touch with us on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com or find us on social at IT Women's Podcast. The podcast is produced by Suzanne Brennan, Katie Mellett and me, Roisin Ingle with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I will talk to you next time. <laughs>